0: All right, well, one more time, we're going to take a look at how we can use God's Word to inform us as we sit down with our Bibles in the morning. Um, what I want to do here is just uh, put the, the context in front of you. Peter is is writing to his believers. These are Christians in the early church, and they're persecuted, and their lives are hard. And, and uh, they're around a very secular crowd of people. And uh, the message here at the beginning of chapter 3 is that the world around them uh, is a sinful world, a lustful world, and it's full of people who actually don't believe that the Lord is coming again. So if he's not coming again, let's just continue to live the way we want to live. Let's follow our own desires. And what I want to get to down farther in about verses 10 through 14 is what kind of people we should be in light of the fact that God is coming again. So uh, Peter writes, and he says, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. So what's happening here is you have a group of people, group of men, and their lusts are pulling them along. They're dragging them along into a course of life. And you see the, the mindset that these people have in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? Where is, if, if God is going to come again, Where is it? I'm not seeing it. And then they go on to say, things have always been, things are the way they've always been. Things are not changing. Things are just going to continue and continue and continue. So why should I get too worried about living a holy life? Why should I get too worried about uh, changing the way I live? And then Peter writes for a couple of verses in helping them understand that, that God actually is sovereign in all things. And he points back to the flood and says that it's by God's word that the flood waters came upon the earth and flooded the world. And then he goes on to talk in verses 7 and 8 about what is coming. And he says, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. And so what we see here is that where Peter was looking backwards in verses 5 and 6, and he starts to look forward in verse 7 forward to a, another destruction that's coming, but this time it's not a destruction with water, it's a destruction with fire. And what he's talking about there is the elimination of this earth and this heaven at the end of this age. Um, the day of the Lord speaks of a, a broad range time, it also speaks of particular events in that time, and, and Peter's focus here is the very, very end of this world and the heavens that are above us. Um, One day, all of this is going to be destroyed. It's going to be replaced with the new heavens and the new earth. And Peter's talking about that event. It's going to happen with fire. We're going to look at verses 10 through 14 and, and what that means for us as we're sitting down with our Bibles in the morning. Peter writes, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then he describes what's going to take place and and how it's going to appear, how it's going to sound. But we know what a a thief is like. It's someone that we we know we have locks on our doors. We know that there's a a possibility that someone could attempt to break in. So we we lock our doors. But any time that somebody does come in and actually attempt to break in, it is a surprise. So on the one hand, we know there's a possibility of something happening. But when it occurs, it is a bit of a surprise to us, at least here and apparently that was the situation in Peter's context as well, that um, he was saying, you know, there, there is going to come a day when, when God is going to come again, and it's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come at a time when it's unexpected. And then he goes and explains what he just said earlier in verse 7, that the heavens will pass away with the war and the elements, everything we have here in front of us that you can see and touch, they'll be destroyed with intense heat. And so that's the foundation I want to, to want to lay before, as we examine why it is that we should spend time alone with the Lord and why it is we should earnestly pursue that. And we see that starting in verse 11 and we're going to read through um verse 14. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So Peter says, what we what should we be like? We need to be the the kind of people who have holy conduct and godliness. And and he says this. He says, this is the kind of person we should be. We should be the kind of person who is looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. So it's somebody who's got an eye to the future. They've got one eye on this present life. They're living wisely. They're living sensibly in this world. They're, They're managing all of the things that God has put in their life. But they also have one eye fixed on eternity. And that's helping them gauge the way that they interact with the world around them because they have an eternal perspective. And he says that it's something that's very helpful for us to understand here. As we are holy people, as we are godly people in our conduct, um, we actually hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. As we submit ourselves to God's design for our life and, and make ourselves more and more fruitful instruments in God's plan for us, uh, we actually are, are actively participating in God's design for us and um, hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. And he says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. So the, the thrust there that Peter is, is pointing out is that it has meant for us we need to be the kind of men who are living in peace, in peace with one another, and in peace with God. And we are, in an ongoing way, uh, living in a way that is spotless and blameless. And there's a there's a reality here that we want to make sure we understand. There is a, a positional spotlessness, a positional blamelessness, a positional peace that the believer has, that they're given at conversion. It's something that that God does. He takes somebody out of their sin. And puts them into right relationship with him. Uh, But Peter is saying that while that is true. It is true also that we need to be the kind of people today. Who are pursuing that. And living that to to increasing amounts. Every day in our lives. And the best way we do that. Is by reading our Bibles. And by spending time alone with the Lord in prayer. So when you're sitting there in the morning. And you've got your Bible open. And and you need to get your thoughts gathered. um, One other way to just focus your thoughts, is to say, Lord, I know you are coming again. I know the end of this age is going to come to an end. I know it is. And I know your instruction for me is that I need to be a man who's spotless and blameless before you. I recognize that I have that positionally, but I want that progressively in my life. I want that to be growing. And uh, Lord, would you use this time in your word and use this time in prayer to grow me in my spotlessness and my blamelessness. Um, Thank you for the position that I have before you, where you look at me and you see the righteousness of your son. Thank you for that. Um, Grant me your grace through the reading of your word to be the kind of man who's increasingly blameless, increasingly spotless, so that I can be ready for the day of the Lord. That's just encouragement to you men. I I hope that helps you uh, think rightly about your time in the word. If you're looking for ways to focus your thoughts and your mind and gather yourself as you sit down with your Bible, uh, whether it's in the morning or the evening or some other corner of the day, uh, I pray that this would be an encouragement to you to help you draw near to the Lord so that your time in prayer and uh, the word is is really, really fruitful.
1: We're going to be talking about discipline one, your heart again, but it's the way your heart is affects your life, particularly the outflow of your life and godliness and the, the command that's throughout Scripture explicitly in First Timothy four to train yourself for godliness. I want to just think about real life, life in this world. When you see a bodybuilder, I think bodybuilding's a little weird, but there's a lot of respect there. When you see a bodybuilder It won't work for them to say, I have a show tomorrow. I better really get focused today, right? A a bodybuilder who's perfectly chiseled, their fat is low single digits. Each one of their muscles is exactly how they've worked it to be for months or for years. That's not the result of one day of hard work or really focusing on the day of the show. That's, that's. Months, years of diligence in every aspect of their life, culminating in what you can see. It's the same in elite athletes. Usain Bolt, I heard him talking about what made him great. Certainly he had amazing genetics, but he says, I trained for years to run nine seconds. Kobe Bryant, he's famous for his 4 a.m. workout sessions, patterning his his sleep all of his life so he could work out multiple times throughout the day, eating right throughout the day, getting his mind right. And you saw it on the floor. When the fourth quarter and his team was down and he really wanted to win, you just knew he was going to do what he needed to do. And it wasn't because he tried really hard right then, but it, it was because he trained himself for that moment. I love football. I think of, of Jerry Rice or modern Cooper Cup. You could probably, I'm going to leave, you could name lots and lots of people, but they're marked not only by amazing examples of when they just magically seem to be open when they needed to be to make the catch. But they're they are well known. If you ask their teammates what make them great, if you, if you watch the, the top 100 and you hear, hear people talk about them, it's not, oh, look what they do in the game, but you hear them talk about what they do in the off-season, the way that they watch tape, their emphasis on weight training and nutrition, their practice habits. The amazing catch doesn't happen in that moment, but it's the culmination of a life of discipline. And the Christian's godliness isn't just Oh, I hope I can survive in that moment of testing. Right, a Christian's godliness isn't just some magical effort or divine intervention, although it is supplied by the Lord when it when it matters, but a Christian's godliness is the culmination of a life of discipline aiming at godliness. We we can learn from athletes. We should learn from athletes. Not to mimic their all-out effort at a prize that fades. A prize that, that only lasts. I, I don't know if you've, when somebody wins the Super Bowl and you see the party, all the confetti, it's almost a letdown. Because you're like, everything was striving for that moment and you finally got it. And it's like, That's really good. Good job. It's exemplary. You 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 arrived. You know the 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 winner, the Olympic runner, wins the race, gets the gold. Glorious, but anticlimactic. Not for the Christian. We we run the race for a prize that will not fade. We live for a life that's not temporary but eternal. And yet we can learn from athletics and discipline. Athletes prepare, envisioning for the moment when they step up to the plate with bases loaded, down by three in the bottom of the ninth. Their preparation is what matters in that moment. Right? Down by one, second on the clock with two free throws. It's those thousands and thousands and thousands of free throws made when nobody was watching that determines what they do. And when you find yourself in the David and Bathsheba moment or the Joseph and Potiphar moment, it's not primarily what's going on in that moment that's going to determine how you fare but what you did in the hours and days when nobody was watching and when you thought it didn't really matter up until that moment. And maybe your, your life won't be defined by something so dramatic as Joseph and Potiphar, David and Bathsheba, but maybe the, the what kind of man are you? Who, who are you known as in the office? at work, by your kids, by your wife. That's not any one moment, but it's the culmination of a life. It's, oh, what kind of man is, put your name on there, and if you ask the ones closest to you, you know that they don't define you by you at your best, or those single moments, but, but it's you at, at you, and your day in, day out, what kind of man are you? What kind of man will you be when the records are laid bare before the Lord? Luke eight seventeen says God will bring every work to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen says that sorry Luke eight seventeen says nothing secret will not be known. Uh, everything will be which is hidden, good or evil, will be. Brought before the Lord is Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen. Will you be judged to have been godly or a fraud? That's going to be the day in, day out. Right? When you look back at, at the career of an amazing athlete, let's compare Jerry Rice, Allen Iverson. I don't know if you guys are sports athletes, but you're like, okay, what's Allen? Amazing genetics, amazing performance, even a champion, but his legacy will always be defined by him in an interview saying, it's just practice, I don't have to, I'm not going to make my teammates better by practicing. And he never was what he could have been because he just coasted, relied on his natural talents, relied on stepping up when it counted, But, but at the end his legacy will be less than it could have been. Yours will be the same if you do not discipline yourself for godliness. Even the Apostle Paul was terrified that at the end, after he preached the gospel, at the end, he might be disqualified. He didn't rest on his laurels. He said, "I like a boxer, I know there's actually going to be a fight. I don't box like I'm boxing the air. I'm boxing like somebody's going to come for me and knock me out i got to be ready. I've got to train my reflexes. i got to train myself so that in that moment, I survive. You cannot coast in your godliness. You can't think, oh good, I came to build. I learned about shepherding my heart. I'm learning about this. I, I'll be fine. Or think of of life, And we go out into the world and it's like a torrent, like a river, all of us running in one direction. You, you see in Ephesians 2, the course of this world. You're tossed out in there, in this life. Are you going to be like a leaf that just follows the course of this world because you go where the current carries you? <laughs> or are you in light of God's grace? You were dead and now you're alive. If you, I don't have time to go into there, but read Ephesians 2 later. And you're like, you were just like the rest of mankind and God made you alive and said, you. Are you going to be like a fish in that stream or, are you, or a leaf in that stream or like a fish that's swimming upstream different than everybody else? That doesn't happen in bursts of effort, but in daily diligence of discipline towards godliness. Think of Matthew 13, the parable of the soils all received the same seed. Only one had fruit that endured, that was able to survive tribulation and persecution, that wasn't choked by the cares of this world. You don't just sit back in this life and say, I wonder what kind of soil I will be. There are constant commands in Scripture. Live a life worthy of the calling. Seek to make your calling and election more sure. Strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Discipline yourself for godliness. The Bible often depicts the Christian life like an athletic endeavor. So I've made these illustrations like a race, like a fight. It's one of Paul's favorites. And in our main text for today, Paul is exhorting Timothy to train for godliness like an athlete trains for their event. This is the Paul who declares of his own ministry. I referenced it earlier, 1 Corinthians 9, 26, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I might I myself should be disqualified. Or Philippians 3.12. I press on to make the prize of all that comes with persevering in my faith, my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And at the end of his life, as he finished well, Paul would declare in 2 Timothy 4, it's a sweet, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award me on that day, but not to me only, but also to all who has, who have loved his appearing men. The stakes of this Christian life are high and it's a race. You must finish. You don't have the option to run this race or not. We are all running. But it's a race you must run, and you must run to win. It's very easy to intend to be godly, resolve to be godly, say, oh, I really should be godly, I should do better, I want to do better. But when it comes down to it, just not do the things that are required to be godly. How many people buy gym memberships? do well for a time, and fall off? How many resolutions or promises have you made and failed to follow through? Inevitably, it was because you didn't prize it high enough. You didn't do it daily. Maybe you did for a time, and then you fell out of practice. Other things became a higher priority. Men of build, it is not sufficient... To merely know about these things, you must do them. You must actually guard your heart, your home, your ministry. And how you will persevere in godliness isn't just about what you do today, though it must include today. If you're not persevering, make the change now. If you're not disciplining yourself for godliness, start right now. Change your life. Say, these are the things that are distracting me from it, they must go. You discipline yourself for godliness, and you start now if you haven't already. But it's not just about today. It's about today, tomorrow, this week, every day until you die. There must be discipline. Let's read our text, First Timothy 4, 7, and then we'll jump in, and that was all introduction. Good luck getting all those notes in that little spot. Sorry about that. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. Train yourself for godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. Let's pray. And I'll start it. God, I... I pray for the next 35 minutes or so that you help me to be clear. Help me to be accurate. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would be active in these men and in me too. God, guard me from being a hypocrite. I'm calling men to a higher standard than I can live to, but I pray that I would attain it. I pray that we would all by your grace through the functioning of your Holy Spirit, live the life of faith that, that you authored and you will perfect. As we discipline ourselves for the godliness to which you called us. God, I, I just beg that you would be active this morning, that you would cause these things to have effect in us, that you would cause these things to, to demonstrate themselves in us and in our lives. Be glorified in each of us and in our church. In Jesus' name, Amen. So Paul here, first Timothy, he's exhorting Timothy, son in the faith, and through him the church he shepherded to godliness. If you go back, Paul transitions at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 he, he, uh, to a personal address to Timothy. Uh, he's talking about the life in the church in chapter 3, and, and he says that life in the church is all about God. So the life of those in the church must therefore be characterized by godliness. That's the connection between 3 and 4. And this word godliness, it's used in the New Testament more in First Timothy than the whole rest of the Bible combined. Paul doesn't actually use the word outside of the pastoral epistles. And it gen- the, the description of that, if you look it up in, in the dictionary, it, it generally describes outward evidences of a genuine faith and reverence for God. False teachers often imitated it for selfish ends, like 1 Timothy 6 5, 2 Timothy 3 5. But here, Paul has the genuine article in mind when he says, train yourself for godliness. Right before this verse, you might see Paul is warning specifically against a form of religion with the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. A form of religion with outward deeds, but a heart that's set on pleasing self and not the Lord. In the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 4, these types of people are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So Paul warns at the beginning of chapter 4, right? He said, The church needs to be all about God, so the people of the church, especially you first, Timothy, as you lead, must be godly. But beware, there's going to be people that try to look godly. What are they going to try to do? They're going to do things that look disciplined. Don't do this. Don't do that. There's a threat to the church that comes from this looks like godly teaching, but actually comes from the teaching of demons propagated by liars with consciences seared. It's this kind of teaching that's designed to look like godliness, but it's actually the opposite of godliness. It's a human self-made religion. Paul says in, in Colossians 2, if with Christ you died to the spirit of this world, why would you submit to regulations like don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? According to human precepts and teaching, these things have an appearance of wisdom promoting a self-made religion, but they're of no value in actually stopping the indulgences of the flesh. If the end is discipline, like, oh, I just need to be more disciplined. I need to be okay to not eat. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, as if this is an end in and of itself. This thing is off limits to me in a pursuit of Mastering self as if that's the end. That's that's generally what religions do. You'll see a lot of self-help gurus preach that kind of thing. They it might actually help you master your body. But what will it not accomplish? It will not accomplish godliness if you're not aiming at godliness. So beware of that. Discipline without love of God will not produce godliness. It might produce something that has the appearance of godliness, but it 's a wicked distortion that 's actually to be avoided. The discipline we 're to pursue is true godliness that flows from a hope set on living God, uh, uh, set on the living God, living this life in light of the life to come. So first Timothy in four70, Timothy is to reject these false teachings. And instead, uh, pursue true godliness. So, rather than um, all of the things that he's to avoid, Timothy is to train himself, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. This is actually the first command in the entire book. If you were to look at the whole book of 1 Timothy, all right, where do the commands start? This is the first command positive imperative command in the whole book that is directed at Timothy himself. And he is to train himself for godliness. If Timothy is to be a faithful servant, he must be godly. Do You see how D two and D three, this is Paul's turning to Timothy, Timothy be a faithful servant in the church, set the believers an example. Um, D2, D3, shepherding your home, shepherding your ministry have to come from shepherding your heart. Paul says before he goes anywhere with how to organize the church, how to lead the church, Timothy, you must train yourself for godliness. Uh, Not like the people who have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power through laws and regulations, but actual pursuing godliness through disciplining yourself, training yourself for godliness. So, what is this word train? Some of the, the versions have discipline. They're translated from a Greek word that has in its root the, the word that we use for gymnasium or gym. It's actually interesting when you go back to the, the etymology of the word. word it means to train or train oneself, and it has a vision towards athletics. It's the, that's why we keep going there. And athletics in this day were generally carried out naked. You see, that the clothes weren't exactly, they didn't have Nike stuff. They didn't have our performance-enhancing gear. The best way to perform was actually to get rid of the stuff, the encumbrances that would So easily entangle. You might have in mind Hebrews 12. Same illustration. Get the stuff that's going to entangle your life off. Discipline yourself. Get rid of all that other stuff. And train naked, I guess. Sweat. You you can turn to to Hebrews twelve one actually. Uh, The author of Hebrews says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus. You have to get rid of sin. (laughs) You can't run this race with a pet sin on your side. Saying, I'm okay to... I love this sin too much it'll be fine i'll get rid of it someday it's not that bad lay that aside it it will impede your race but it's not only sin that impedes your race you can be be distracted by fill in the blank kind of thing video games love of entertainment your hobby friends that distract you. These are not bad things. They're actually things to be received with thanksgiving. But if you can't honor the Lord with these things, if you see things around you that are actually getting your eyes off Jesus as you run this race and distract you from running this race, the cares of the world that in that parable of the soils chokes the seeds, Lay it aside. It's not worth it. Godliness is that important. To train means to endure pain and discomfort toward the achievement of a goal. Pain and discomfort are not the end in and of themselves, right? That's what the appearance of godliness that we're supposed to set aside was aiming at. Oh, make yourself uncomfortable. There's if there's something edifying in and of itself in that. nuh not if it doesn't help you towards godliness, but if there's something uncomfortable that will actually help you in your pursuit of godliness, it's worth it. Your body, my body, naturally, I, I see this every morning when my alarm clock goes off. Oh, half an hour more would feel so good. But why did I set my alarm when I set it for because I had more important things to get up and get after. In all of those things better help me in my race towards godliness. I have to get up. I have to work out. Because if I'm not working out, my body's going to fall apart. My mind's not going to be sharp. And I better do that with enough time to open God's word, So that my mind and my heart are set on God before I get this overwhelming home from the world and all of the cares that are going to be coming. And that just sets the tone for the day. There will be so many calls on you for the day saying, wouldn't it be easier if you just fill in the blank? And those things that wouldn't it be easier if you just, I promise you, there's very few of those things that actually have godliness at the end of them. Kyle quoted it a few weeks ago, this old son's coach. Everything you want is on the other side of hard. It's actually true. And you don't carry this burden alone. I'm, I'm telling you something. It's, it's this paradox of the Christian life. Come to me. My, I have a yoke for you. You have to carry it. You have to persevere to the end. But it's easy and light. And, man, it might be described as affliction. You might be killed for my namesake. You might lose everything, your family, all of your possessions. But it's worth it. It's not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed These slight momentary afflictions, they're preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Why can you count it joy when you face trials? Well, because it's producing endurance in you. God, your Father, is treating you like sons when he brings trials in front of you in this race. Because he's disciplining you. He's molding you into what he saved you to be, which is holy. Because without holiness, none of us will see the Lord. So it's hard. It's way harder than the alternative of sitting back and being that leaf in the river that just gets carried to and fro. gets carried wherever the the path of this world is carrying it. But at the end of this hard is rest. It's God. It's worth it. So discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. The author of Hebrews 12:7, he says, "It is for discipline." This is a different word than the discipline here. That's paideia, tra- training in godliness. It's not a punishment, but it's, it's like what a teacher or disciple would, would put their, their student or, or son through. It's for discipline that you have to endure. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, the author of Hebrews says, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been, same word, trained by it. All right, so when you look at at an athlete beating their body every single day, why are you doing that? Because what I want is worth it, whatever it is that they want. Christian, why do you beat your body every single day? Why do you discipline yourself? Because what you want is worth it. It's godliness. It's holiness. Think of of James chapter 1, the verse where, count it all joy when you face trials. When are you joyful? You're, you're joyful when you get what you want most, right? That, that's generally the things that produce joy in us. Christian, you can count it joy when you face the hardest trial because you know that God is producing endurance, faithfulness, godliness in you. Getting up, and getting in God's Word, saying no to temptation. day in, day out is worth it because you get what you want most and that's God. Strive for the verse, the word in, in Hebrews twelve fourteen. It's it's like a word for hunting, pursuing, running after. Strive for holiness without which no one can see the Lord. One can know the benefits Of a thing and not actually do it. Timothy and us are in danger when it comes to godliness of of being convinced that it's a good thing, that it's something that we want to attain to, something that we want to be known by, and not actually doing it, being able to talk about it. But when we get home, college football's on. I'm not saying don't enjoy college football but not if it distracts you from godliness. Or, man, it was a long week. I just got to sleep in tomorrow. Sleep is a great gift. If you don't know that, go listen to my sleep sermons. It's a great gift, something to embrace. But if it distracts you from godliness, forego it and go to bed earlier than next night. Run to win. 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So Paul says, run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. So Paul puts himself up as an example, like I've already read. So I, I do not run aimlessly. Know what you're running after. A wreath that won't perish. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline, I wear down, I punish, I beat up my body so that I can keep it under control, so that after preaching to others, I will not be disqualified. There's nothing inherently godly in beating up your body for the sake of looking spiritual. But with your eyes set on Jesus, Hebrews 12, 1, for the sake of godliness, We ought to train and discipline better than any world-class athlete. Think of the consistency a bodybuilder must have. If they take a cheat meal in the, the weeks leading up to their show, they're done. Guys, if you take a cheat meal in the hours leading up to the trial, that might be the trial of your life, your David and Bathsheba moment, you may end up like Esau, the example you're supposed to avoid at the end of Hebrews 12. Who even when he wanted to repent with tears, he couldn't find, find it. Brothers, we don't know when those defining moments are coming. You don't have the calendar, the the date on the calendar. Oh, this is when it's really important, when I got to be ready. So I got to really get my act together the days before. You don't know when the call's coming. Like, Job, hey, your kids are all dead. All your houses are flattened. Everything you own is gone. Why did Job respond? Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, he made a habit of godliness that he was well known by. And God sanctified him even still. There is a command, Paul to Timothy train yourself, discipline yourself for a purpose, for the purpose of godliness. And then Paul makes a, a comparison. Comparison that's sort of obvious from the words. The comparison I've been making throughout this time, it's on the back of page two. The comparison is because bodily training is only of a little profit. Bodily training is valuable. It will make you happier if you are healthy, if your body's functioning, if you exercise regularly. You will be happier, smarter, stronger, healthier. (laughs) Facts. Facts. There's just no question about it. There are all kinds of benefits from physical training. If you work out, you will have more endorphins, more testosterone, more growth hormone, more cardiac volume, better insulin sensitivity, your immune system will function better. You will not suffer to the same degree from high blood pressure, obesity, heart disease, diabetes, insomnia, or depression you'll be smarter you'll have more blood flow to your brain you'll have there's all kinds of hormones that are released that actually make you learn better if you get exercise you will feel more aware sharper smarter you'll live longer things will just go better there's benefit there no doubt Benefit, but that benefit ends when this life ends. Compare that to godliness, and that's the the next point. But before we go to to comparing to godliness, which you have to say, all right, physical bodily training is of some profit in this life. It's pales in comparison to the benefit of of godliness. But I want to ask the question, what lessons should we take in our pursuit of godliness from the athlete? This is not an argument to diminish physical training, but it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. There's some benefit here. And there are people who devote their life to this wreath that perishes to this benefit that ends when your life is over. But think about athletes, the, the ones who are every part of their life is aiming at one thing, maximizing their performance. If there's benefit in that one thing, how much more Christian should everything in our life be aiming what godliness is that on your radar your, your homework will ask these questions I, I want you to be specific I want you to be humiliating in the sense of this is an opportunity to say what is keeping you from godliness what's off limits in your training and your discipline and that needs to change and it needs to change today Write it down. If something's on your mind, go to the homework and jot it down so you don't forget. And then tell your spouse, tell your roommate, tell your friend, this is the thing that needs to change. Let's do it. Right? If if an athlete found out, oh man, this one thing is the thing that could get me over my hurdle, to get me a new PR, to get me from not even placing to the the top of the podium. They'd add it for a wreath that perishes. Lay aside every encumbrance and sin that so easily entangles and run with endurance the race set before you with your eyes fixed on Jesus. No matter how elite an athlete you are, no matter how well you master your physical body, if those benefits are only aiming at this life, they'll end when this life ends. They're valuable, but they're only of some value. They actually might be of value for you to engage in in your discipline of your body. It's really hard to be disciplined spiritually and not disciplined physically. I don't know if you've noticed that connection. I certainly have. If I'm eating whatever I feel like it without self-control, I'm probably not going to have a lot of self-control when it comes to other things. I may actually be sinning in my eating. Um, If I... Just all those benefits, I said, of of physical performance, of physical exercise, they actually will make you more aware, more ready to study God's Word. I find I'm more ready to study God's Word when I'm physically active than when I'm not. I find that self-control, disciplining my body, getting up when I set my alarm clock and exercising, makes me ready to keep my butt in the chair when I need to read God's Word. Be ready to say no to desires of my flesh when somebody walks by... A girl not dressed like they ought to be. And my eyes just want to wander, given to my flesh. I'm like, uh uh-uh. uh. I've made a habit today of saying no to the desires of my flesh. I can say no to that one too. And all these other things. Oh, I want to make that purchase. I want to buy that thing I shouldn't buy. Oh, I just need an afternoon chilling. Watching Netflix or playing video games, and I know I should selflessly serve my wife, lead my kids in time in the Word, or fill in the blank thing that accords with godliness. The opportunity to do the one another as we learned about last time. Physical discipline will help you towards those things. So make sure, even if you pursue or as you pursue physical discipline it's not ending at this life but it's aiming forward at godliness which is profitable for all things godliness will actually help you in this life and that's the next point godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for this life and also the life to come as you read the book of proverbs wisdom what's the where does that come from fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom, at least the biblical wisdom, accords with godliness. And you see, when you do things the way that God, God has ordered the world so that when you do things according to his will, according to his design, according to godly biblical wisdom, when you actually live out godliness, things will tend to go better for you. You won't be a sluggard who finds himself poor you won't be the lustful man who finds himself like the animal with the arrow in his liver. Dying because of lack of self-control and all the other benefits of that we see in Proverbs. Remember, this is a comparison from lesser to greater. The underlying logic is that if arduous physical training is worth it, How much more is a life dignified by the presence of divine attributes? Timothy should be willing to go to great lengths to attain this benefit. Like I said, bodily training is not at odds with godliness. It may even be used towards it, but it pales in its benefit. So learn from the effort, intensity, and single-minded passion that true athletes have in the pursuit of a wreath that rots and apply this effort and more for a crown that will never fade. If godless, if godliness has so much more profit than physical excellence, Paul says to Timothy, you should work harder than any athlete in pursuit of godliness. Stop and just let that sink in. If godliness has more profit than physical excellence, you and I should work harder than any athlete in pursuit of godliness. Are you doing that? What needs to change now for you to do that? godliness will not just happen. Godliness will just happen for every Christian. I don't want you to think that this life is lived by effort and that it depends on you. God is the author and perfecter of your faith. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. First Timothy, or Second Peter 1.5 says, God has granted us all that we need pertaining to life and godliness, right? God gave it to you. So because of that, make every effort. Be all the more diligent to be godly. That's Peter's argument. God gave you everything that you need. So be diligent to use it to be godly. We already said Hebrews 12:14 strive for holiness embrace the discipline embrace the hard strive for holiness without which you won't see the Lord Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 beat your body make it your slave so that you're not disqualified Scott mentioned it this morning 2 Peter 3:14 Since we're waiting for the destruction of this world in a new heavens and new earth, Peter then says, be diligent, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. This world's going to go away. But there's something that will survive this world and benefit you in the world to come. It's being holy. Trials, hard things, prepare us that they prepare us for this weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see this, it, these trials aren't worth comparing to what will be revealed. Godliness won't just happen. It happens through obedience in the small things, in the day-to-day in the moment-to-moment. God gets us to his aim of godliness through discipline, through trials, through the daily grind of putting to death the desires of the flesh, the minute-by-minute fleeing youthful lusts, pursuing righteousness, serving one another. This isn't a call to cloister yourself out from the world saying, I need to work on holiness. That's more like that asceticism we're supposed to avoid but no as we live life together in this world godliness in all aspects that will be one another's that will be serving one another's counting others as more important than yourself loving one another's christian your holiness matters in your ability to be prepared to call another one back to holiness Think of Galatians 6. When any is caught in any transgression, it could be one of you, it could be me, what do we need most? You who are spiritual, you who are walking by the Spirit. That one comes alongside and restores the one who's caught in sin in a spirit of gentleness, looking to him, his own self first so that he's not likewise tempted. Brothers, you need your own holiness so that you persevere. I need your holiness so that I persevere. We're not running this race alone. We're running it with our eyes fixed on Jesus who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross all the way to the end. So we're not running alone. We're, we're chasing our, our oldest brother. He already finished. He will bring us to the end. But we run with a crowd of witnesses who've already endured and a crowd of witnesses who are enduring together. And when we look back, we will say, it wasn't I, but Christ in me. Guys, as you read God's word, you will see this theme throughout. The importance Of discipline. Not as an end in and of itself, but discipline for godliness. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. So embrace it. There's a way to embrace this with legalism. Oh, I ran hard. I'm running so hard, God sees it, maybe he'll reward me. Maybe if I run just a little bit harder, I'll make it. You're not, this isn't a tryout, right? Back to the athletic illustration. This isn't a tryout like, oh, I hope God sees my effort and lets me on the team. No, you began by grace. The only way to be on this team, the only way to be part of God's family, the only way to even have a shot at holiness is to have a new heart, to be made a new creature, a new creation, to have your sins forgiven, Christ's righteousness placed on you so that you aren't judged based on your efforts. Because your efforts, if you hold them up and say, look at these efforts, God, look at my discipline, isn't it beautiful? Filthy rags. I am not saying that. You will not impress God, no matter how disciplined you are. You do not discipline your body to impress God or to merit anything. But you're already on the team. He's made you his son and he's called you to holiness. He's declared you to be holy and he sets you on a path towards holiness. He will accomplish what he began. He's the author, made you holy, perfecter, completing holiness. And he does that through the means of discipline. So you don't, Say, God, look at, my, look at my discipline. Isn't this meritorious? You would never use those words. That would be too obvious. But aren't you proud of me, God or church? I'm trying to be disciplined so that those around me see, and they're impressed. Uh-uh. It's not, that's not the point. God, God cares about the heart, the, the most inward you. You discipline yourself so that at the heart level, you're obtaining godliness and then what you we're going to get there my next lesson discipline your heart what i'm getting ahead of myself but so that what flows out of your heart the heart is the wellspring of life what flows out of your heart is godliness when what is in your heart is godliness and you get that heart level godliness by disciplining yourself for the sake of godliness all the time moment by moment No days off until you die. And then when you die, you see him as he is. You might hear this call to godliness and say, I am not that godly. John in first John three, this is my last point. First John three, two, he says, beloved, you are God's children right now. Beloved, you're God's children now. Even when you look at your life and you say, I'm so far short of that aim of godliness. Still run. When you see sin, confess it as sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you, right? Pursuit of godliness involves confession and repentance. It's not hiding your sin, but saying, God, here's more. Will you forgive this too? Will you cleanse me of this? I need to be clean of this if I'm going to be godly. So confess it, but... Beloved, you're God's children now. What you will be has not yet appeared. You're not yet godly. You're not yet perfectly holy. But you know what? When He appears, you'll be like Him because you'll see Him as He is. Don't grow tired. Put your eyes on Jesus, who endured all the way to the cross. In your struggle against sin, you haven't yet endured to the point of shedding blood. You he did. So consider him so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. But keep running. Discipline for the, yourself for the sake of godliness, it is worth it. Let's pray. God thank you for your word for this command for Paul's example and the example of so many who have gone before us and persevered to the end God I pray that you would put godliness as our highest aim so that more than the most disciplined athlete pursues physical excellence we would pursue godliness where that's not happening God I, I pray that you would humble us and make us quick to confess and not merely confess but repent to make the changes that we need to make to enlist the help that we need and that this godliness would be the mark of each man here if there's a man here who is not yet saved and godliness isn't isn't even possible because they can't please you at all they're still in their unmixed condition God I pray that you would handle that right now that you would grant them faith so that they could start this race for those of us who are already on it let us persevere to the end so when this race is done we can say not I but Christ in me in Jesus name we pray amen